I am a Baptist by conviction and desire and choice, and I'm very thankful to be so. There are many places we could start with baptism, but this has become one of my favorite ones over the years, and some of you that pay close attention know that. Let me read to you a few verses opening Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore. And it goes on to describe things in our lives that we should put to death, which is what the word mortify means. The passage starts out with the words, If ye then be risen with Christ. We are slaves to context. So when we find that here in Colossians chapter 3, we back up to Colossians chapter 2, and we find in the 12th verse, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the operation of God, and we have faith, we believe and trust in that operation that we didn't see, but we have read about in the pages of Scripture, and we have been baptized into his death by showing a likeness of his burial, by our burial in water, and by showing a likeness to his resurrection, by our resurrection from water. Colossians 2 and 12 is sufficient in its own way of proving why we are Baptists. Buried with him in baptism. So baptism must involve a burial, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, and so we are raised out of that watery grave to show our resemblance to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God raised him from the dead. So with verse 12 in mind, buried with him in baptism, wherein also, that means in baptism, you also did something else, you are risen with him. So we come over back to 3.1. There's more that could be said because even verse 20 of chapter 2 refers to that same issue of baptism. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ. Well, when were you made dead with Christ according to the context? In baptism. If you're dead with Christ, why in the world would you engage in the rudiments of the world in verse 20? But I want to come back to verse 1. I'm addressing most of you as having been baptized already. And I appreciated the brother that has prayed today and already said that uh, we don't have any danger in this church of departing from the Bible ordinance of baptism. We love what the Bible teaches about baptism. We're not facing any church votes or church councils coming up in which we'll change our doctrine of baptism. And so that isn't the reason why 
the Lord directed me to preach on this subject last evening, it's because I want to remind all of you of the glory of the gospel that's presented in the doctrine of baptism, the thorough evidence that the Bible gives us of the ordinance as we keep it, and that you would all be caused to reflect upon your own baptism as we consider the baptism of a man and his wife among us. So it says, if ye then be risen with Christ. And that is exactly what was described in 12, verse 12 of chapter 2, that we were buried with Him, we were raised with Him in the ordinance of baptism. So, the apostle appeals to the fact, and he, he does this in other places as well. For those of you that know Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, for if we have been planted in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. But here, if ye then be risen with Christ, I appeal to all those of you who have been baptized. Think back right now to the age you were when you were baptized. You were immersed in water, put into a watery tomb and grave, and raised out of it. You were raised with Christ by baptism. If so, thinking about your baptism... I think of mine. If ye then be risen with Christ, if we are baptized believers who have come out of that watery grave, being raised up by the administrator who put us down in that grave, then there are things that should be true about our lives. And so the apostle makes his appeal. Seek those things which are above. If ye then be risen, Christ rose from the dead, and where did he go? To the right hand of the Father. If we're risen with Christ, where should our affection and attention be? What should we be seeking? Where He is. And the things He's doing. And the things important to Him. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And so there's an appeal made to our baptisms to think about that fact. I remember yours, brother. I can tell you what state and what city and where we were and so forth. I want us all to think about our baptisms. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now as I address all of you that are baptized, are you all seeking those things which are above more than the things on this earth? It is so easy for our view to get horizontal rather than vertical. So easy. Our flesh wants to drag our line of sight down. Our flesh wants to curtail our sight so that we become very short-sighted. Do you remember 2 Peter 1.9 that says they are blind and cannot see afar off because all they can see is what's right at hand and what's here in this world rather than what's not in hand but out there where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So I appeal to you today. Seek those things which are above. Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus has left this earth now. Jesus has been away from this earth for 2,000 years. And we ought to set our affection where His affection lies and where He is. Your affection is not out of your control. The things you love is not because of some circumstantial situation you are in. It is a choice to love or not to love. 
It is a choice to love something. It is a choice to hate something. And it is a choice that you have control over. Thus, verse 2 reads, set your affection. Put your affection on the things above where Christ is, where you should be thinking because you were raised in baptism like He was raised out of His tomb after three days and three nights. So put your love on things above. It's a choice, and it's a choice we have to make every day because our flesh wars against this choice. Our flesh wants to love the things of this life. Our flesh does love the things of this life. The lusts of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, the pride of life. We want to be successful. We want to enjoy the pleasures. We want to taste the world. And yet it tells us to put our love on things above, not on things on the earth. Not the things down here, the things up there. The spiritual things, not the carnal things. For, now he's going to appeal to baptism again from a different angle. He started with the end of baptism, and that's being resurrected out of the water. But before we can be resurrected out of that watery grave, we are buried in that watery grave, showing that we are dead. So verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You are dead to the things of this world, because that's why you were baptized. You were baptized to bury your old man because the things of this life no longer interested you. You wanted to rise out of that watery grave to live in newness of life with your affection on things above. For ye are dead. Now we don't have to worry right now about eternal death, legal death, vital death, or final death. Because what's under consideration here is practical death by baptism. We are dead by our first ordinance initiating us into following Jesus Christ by our baptism. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When we committed ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we said, as far as this world is concerned, I'm dead to it. I don't care about it any longer. And the Apostle Paul would say, and they think the same thing of us. And you know what? Amen. That's okay if the world wants to think that of us, that we are dead to them, because we ourselves are dead to them. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Where is our life? It's hid from them. It's not hid to us. We know exactly where our life is. Our life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. But to them, they don't know what moves us. They don't know what motivates us. They don't know what we love. They don't really see what is their life all about. Because they can't see it because it's hid with Christ in God. And that's a wonderful place to have your life wrapped up in Christ in God. It's hid from their view. They didn't know Him. They don't know us. Passages of Scripture can be turned to, proving that point, but that's what this text means in verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God, the source of our life, the joy of our life, the future of our life, the power of our life, the pleasure of our life, is in Christ and it's in God. And we declared that when we were baptized. Now some of you may be thinking to yourselves right now, I wish... 
that I had known more about baptism when I was baptized. And I appreciate that argument. But as long as you have faith in it that God was pleased with your faith, then it is sufficient. But all you have to do right now to reactivate your baptism a little bit is to think through this passage of Scripture and see if it's true of you. Because that's more important than what you were thinking on the day of your baptism. What's important right now is are you committed to living for the Lord Jesus Christ because of your baptism and in line with your baptism? It goes on to say in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, See, our life is hid with Christ in God, and He's in heaven, and He has not left us not to return. He has left us to prepare a place for us, and He is coming again, that where He is, there we may be also. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. We are hid to the world right now. Christ is hid to the world right now. There is coming a day. That's a song, isn't it? There is coming a day. Sister Sylvia, it's good to see you here this morning. Because when I think of that song, I think of you. You taught it to me. It's 370 in the Burgundy, one day at your house. You got me so excited about it. I borrowed one of your hymnals and drove away singing and driving at the same time. Because it's a wonderful song. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. I love first. Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16, that says there is coming a day in the which the Lord Jesus Christ will appear in His times, and He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. See, He hasn't shown the world yet. He showed the world His humiliation by His death on the cross and His birth in a manger and so forth. But there's coming a day in which He will show the world that He is the blessed and only potentate. I wonder what all the potentates of the Shriners are going to do when they find out that He's the blessed and only potentate. 1 Timothy 6, 13-16, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now notice what it says in verse 4 here. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Guess who's going to be all around him on white horses of our own, according to the picture of Revelation 19? You and me. Now, is that worth living for him? Is that worth setting your affection on things above? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We are going to be glorified forever around the Lord Jesus Christ. He won't be ashamed to call us brethren. And the whole universe is going to know that He is our brother, we are His brethren, and they are going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever with the devil and his angels. Oh, brethren, we are stating today for two that they believe this, and that they are going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you that have been baptized, I hope that you want to live for Him as well. Now let let me just joy with you in our doctrine of baptism. This is what it should mean to us. And so as we watch the burial grave form today and the the watery resurrection coming consequent to that, let us remember these four verses that were risen with Christ by our baptism. 
We should set our affection on things above because we have been raised and He's been raised all the way to the right hand of God. We're dead. So the things of this world do not affect us anymore, nor do they should they draw us. And Christ, who is our life, is coming soon. And our life is hid with Christ in God, but it is soon going to be revealed that we are His, that He died for us, that we are joint heirs with the Son of God. In my studies this week, the scenes in the book of Revelation that describe different orders of beings, we must always keep in mind that no matter how glorious a being may be described, they are less than you will be in heaven. Because you are the sons of God joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is set far above all principalities, powers, might, throne, and dominion that is named not only in this world, but in the world to come. That is one fantastic, glorious thought because there are some pictures and scenes and creatures described in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Revelation 4 and 5 that we are greater than because we are the sons of God. Don't forget that. The first choir that sings in Revelation chapter 5 are those that are able to fall down before the Lamb and to thank Him for redeeming them out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and family on earth. Were the 24 elders Jews or Gentiles? They were Jews. Twelve patriarch fathers, twelve apostles, representative numbers, symbolic numbers. But do you know what those four and twenty elders sang when they threw down their crowns before the Lamb? That He had redeemed them out of every tongue, tribe, family, and nation on earth. Because those twenty-four represent the entire redeemed family of God. Because there's no other believer mentioned in heaven but those twenty-four elders. Oh, that is just sweet. It starts with us because we're the closest to God. Then it moves out to the angels. Then it moves out to every creature because we are the sons of God. Baptism is a wonderful ordinance. I'm thankful to be a Baptist, and I hope that you're thankful as well. 95% of the Christian world doesn't understand baptism. There's 2.1 or 2.2 billion. One-third of the earth's population almost claims to be Christian. Yet 95% of them can't figure out this ordinance. They either do it to infants, or they do it by aspersion or effusion, pouring or sprinkling. They understand that it saves the soul and regenerates the dead in trespasses and sins, and they're all messed up and mixed up. And the Lord has shown us so much. The only criterion for truth is what the King James Bible says. And when I say the King James Bible on this subject, it's necessary because in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, they have done one terrible job of corrupting that wonderful verse of Scripture about baptism. We are commanded in the Old and the New Testament not to add to or take away from the words of God. I began this morning by reminding you of the due order of how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported and the breach that God made because the priests and the Levites did not do it properly the first time. We are forbidden to turn to the left hand or to the right hand 
from God's ordinances. What God said to do, that is what we should do. And if an angel from heaven, or if Paul himself, preached any other gospel unto us to do something different or to add to or to take away, he should be accursed. According to his own order in Galatians chapter 1. All the opinions of any man or all the opinions of all men mean nothing to us in comparison to the Word of God. We don't believe the Bible because we're Baptists. We're Baptists because we believe the Bible. There's no more hope for infant sprinkling than for offering strange fire to the Lord. Moving the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart or any other fatal innovations in worship. We don't change what God's given us. It's amazing to me to think upon what I'm saying to you right now, that 95% of those that call themselves Christians can't figure out the doctrine of baptism. Now some of them may be the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. But Mormons can't figure out the doctrine of baptism. They think that you get baptized for your dead relatives by proxy in their underground baptistries in their temples. I'm sure that you have met some nice Presbyterians and Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians. doesn't matter how nice they are. I think David was a pretty nice man in the Bible, but God certainly reigned on His parade in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 1 Chronicles chapter 13. doesn't matter how nice you are. We can say this about our doctrine of baptism, that there's many Baptists in hell. Because truth on this subject is neither the means nor the evidence of eternal life. We don't have the, the name Baptist in our church name because we don't want to be associated with the four or five hundred other churches that have the word Baptist in their names in this county and we disagree with 99% of them, which leaves four or five that we ought to explore that might agree with us on how we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you die for baptismal truth? Amen. Our brother Stephen has brought us men that died for baptismal truth. Would you be willing to die for the truth of baptism? Who was the first Baptist martyr? John was the first Baptist martyr. Now, he didn't die and have his head cut off because he was a Baptist, but he did die and have his head cut off, and he was a Baptist, and he was a Baptist preacher, and he was the first Baptist preacher, and he's the first Baptist martyr. Because he preached like a Baptist preacher should preach. That having your brother's wife is wrong. Who's the second Baptist martyr in the pages of Scripture? Jesus. Jesus didn't die for the doctrine of baptism, but Jesus was a Baptist preacher. And he's the second one in the pages of Scripture. You say, on what basis do you say that Jesus was a Baptist? Because he was baptized by a Baptist preacher. If you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, what are you? You're a Baptist. What I like better is, Mary was a Baptist. Peter was a Baptist. (laughs) I like that one too. They were baptized by Baptist preachers. If you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, you're a Baptist. You don't get baptized by a Baptist preacher and then you're a Methodist. You're a Baptist. Thank you, Lord. I want you to remember that John Calvin, that understood that the ancient mode of baptism was by immersion just the way we do it, that the ancient qualification for baptism was faith before baptism, John Calvin, along with the Council of Geneva, ordered 
Michael Servetus to be burned at the stake in Geneva, Switzerland in 1553, around the time that Brother Stephen's speaking, for two official charges. He repudiated infant baptism and he denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. If you think this is too hard for John Calvin, you need to go read John Calvin's opinion of Baptists in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, book 14, chapter 16. We don't want to forget the memory of the first two churches in this state. The First Baptist Church of, it wasn't called that in the early days, of Charleston, and what's now called the First Baptist Church of Georgetown, South Carolina. Those two churches were started by a father and a son, William Screven from Kittery, Maine, and Elisha Screven, his son. William Screven was a Baptist pastor in Kittery, Maine, who was fined and imprisoned for preaching against infant baptism when the state church of Maine was the congregational church. And for for those of you that want to connect a few dots, Jonathan Edwards was a congregationalist. William Screven brought 28 church members, the whole church, to Charlestown, South Carolina, and formed a Baptist church there in 1692. That's nearly a hundred years before the Revolutionary War in our country. And it was the first Baptist church in the South. Not capital F, First Baptist Church, but it was the first Baptist church in the South. You've heard these things from me before, but I love having some ancestors in the faith that were willing to pay a price for the doctrine of baptism. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut and preach everything else the Bible has in it except baptism, and the Congregationalists would have let him exist in Maine. But he wouldn't. And so he came south, and we're thankful that he wouldn't. His son Elisha Screven went 60 miles north and founded the city of Georgetown, South Carolina. Elisha Screven is the founder of Georgetown. He laid out the city streets. He gave two acres to the Church of England because the Church of England was the state church of South Carolina. But it was more tolerant than the state church of Maine. A state church means that you pay taxes and your taxes pay for the minister of the church that you consider to be a heretic. And next to the Church of England, he had a one-acre plot for the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ. Remember that word? We don't know how to pronounce it, Antipato or Antipodo. We do know how to pronounce it. But uh, sometimes I play games with you. The Antipato Baptist Church of Christ, right next to the State Church of South Carolina, the Church of England. What does Antipato stand for? Anti-infant baptism. Pato. Children. What does a Presbyterian call themselves when they're being official? Pado-Baptist. Child baptizer. Infant baptizer. A pediatrician. Pado. Doctor. Child child doctor. Anti-Pado-Baptist Church of Christ. Do you love that man? Right next to the Church of England. There's their sign out front. Anti-Pado-Baptist Church of Christ. Would you be willing to walk up that sidewalk and go in the front? Oh, I'd run. When I go to Georgetown, I, I love to look at their graves and wish I could embrace them living. I'm thankful for them. Thankful for their courage. A couple more things about Georgetown. If you ever go there, every city has its church street. Many cities have their church street, and so church street bounds Georgetown and and the intersecting city blocks. 
it bounds it, and all the churches were lined up on Church Street. And there was the Church of England on a two-acre plot, and there was the Antipato, Antipato Baptist Church of Christ in a one-acre plot. Now, then there were, there were city streets that came up and ended at each church. And William Screven wanted to know, everyone to know where he stood, so Screven Street in Georgia, it's all still there. Screven Street ends at the Anapato Baptist Church of Christ. And he wanted everyone to know who ends up at the Church of England as well, and so Broad Street ends there. You gotta see it and love it. I'm thankful for men like that. Catholics practice effusion, pouring. Presbyterians, aspersion, sprinkling. Baptists, immersion, to dip, plunge, or submerge under the water. The primary issues that we care about in baptism, the primary issues we care about are the result, the subject, and the mode of baptism. The result of baptism, does baptism save? Most Christians say baptism saves. And it's a horrible assumption. And once you make that one assumption, you will do all kinds of things to the doctrine of baptism in order to keep saving. Because you're running into difficulties. And so the first thing we ask and want to think about is the result of baptism. Did God design the ordinance of baptism to save? Does it regenerate? Does it bring about the new birth? And no, it does not. And so that question needs to be asked, and we stand negatively that it does not save. It does not put away the filth of the flesh, as we shall see shortly. It doesn't regenerate. We are born again by the instantaneous, monergistic, meaning one, is involved, power of the Holy Ghost. That's how we're born again. Remember the three B's of the gospel. We have to be born again first. Our birth has to come first, then our belief, then our baptism. That's the order that we have it. Catholics have baptism first, then birth, which happens by the baptism, and then belief, which they get around to around catechism time. And uh, the other sacrament there that just left me, confirmation. Thank you, brother. Then we have the Church of Christ. They put belief first because they know that in the Bible, Alexander Campbell knew the order. He also knew that from the days of the apostles had existed a group of people called Baptists. you got to read Alexander Campbell on that particular point. I may have time to read some of that to you. Alexander Campbell in the Church of Christ. Belief comes first because he knows that Believer's baptism was the only doctrine taught in the New Testament. So it's belief, then baptism, then birth. You believe first, then you got to get baptized in order to be born again. The Church of Christ and Pentecostal churches believe that order. You wash away your sins in the waters of the baptismal tank. They mess up the bees of the gospel. The first thing we want to think about about baptism is its result. It does not save. They believe that it does save. Once you say that baptism saves, and there's a mommy that's afraid of losing her young child, and baptism saves, what are you going to do? You're going to invent infant baptism to help mommies. Fifty percent 
at times during the dark ages of births would end in a stillbirth or the baby would die in infancy. 50%. That means that pastors or priests or whoever was leading the church in their particular village, town, or city had a lot of mourning mommies to take care of. And when there's mourning mommies to take care of, and they make up the majority of your congregation anyway, since most daddies can't get into Mary worship, then you bring about infant baptism. Can you understand that? You make the fatal assumption that baptism saves, you will bring in infant baptism to cover all those children that die before some age of maturity or age of accountability. Because the Catholics believe in original sin. Let's give them credit. It's very seldom, but let's give them credit. They believe in original sin. So they believe that a child dying is guilty of original sin without baptism. Now they might invent a halfway house for it called limbo, but uh, we're not going to go there right now. The Bible has no sprinkling or pouring in it. But listen, what if someone wants to be baptized and you believe that baptism saves but there's not enough water around to get them underwater. What are you going to do? You're going to start up pouring and sprinkling. Where did it all come from? Because baptism saves. You believe that baptism saves. You have your grandfather in a bed. You don't have a bathtub near. He's about to die. He wants to go to heaven. You rub a little water on his forehead and call it a baptism. And so they invent these things because they started out with the terrible assumption that baptism saves. The Bible has no infant baptism at all. So if you're like the Church of Christ and you're going to baptize those that are believers, you have to reject original sin. I wish you all knew this about these denominations. Alexander Campbell in the Church of Christ rejects original sin because he knows that only believers can be baptized. He knows that baptism saves. If baptism saves and you can't be baptized until you're old enough to be a believer, what do you have to do with original sin? Bye-bye. Now, if you don't want to get rid of original sin, because you can see it in Romans chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 3, but you believe that you have to be a believer before you can be baptized, but baptism saves, there is another alternative. You invent the age of accountability. See, then you can have original sin plus the age of accountability, which gets a child through original sin because they're not accountable yet. Where did all this come from? Baptism saves. That's where it came from. Since your relatives never met Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith had a dispensation from God about baptism that no one else has had, then you need to be baptized by proxy for all your dead relatives. Thus, the Mormon church has more genealogical records than any other organization on earth. And the reason they do is so that you can go be baptized for them. Because they believe that baptism saves, and the only baptism that saves to a Mormon is a Joseph Smith baptism in an underground baptistry in a Mormon temple. So you get to go do it 20 times, 50 times, 100 times. By proxy. That's what they call it. Baptism by proxy. Most or all of these that assume that baptism saves... Do you know how weak their doctrine of salvation is? They can all get you in hell before the end of your life. It's unbelievable. 
you commit a mortal sin as a Catholic after you've been baptized, you are in deep trouble. We thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that He has saved us from our sins before, during, and after our baptisms. Our baptism is simply a symbolic representation of what He did to put away our sins, all of them, once for all. What a wonderful doctrine of the gospel that is seen in the waters of baptism. And we're going to get to see that today. We're going to see a burial and we're going to see a resurrection. I'm going to remind you of the three burials and the three resurrections that ought to be at the forefront of your mind. We love our English Bible. You know, the word Baptist and the word baptize is really a transliterated word coming out of the Greek, bapto and baptizo, and just brought into English. And there are Baptists that that disrespect King James, and they disrespect the King James translators because they say our Bible should read if they would have translated that word, John the Dipper. John the Dipper. And John was near Jordan, dipping in Jordan. And yes, we would have, we would have enjoyed that. But you know what? I love the Bible just the way we got it. So that if somebody wants to use the word baptize because it's just a transliterated church word and go ahead and practice infant sprinkling, they have grounds for it. Because if they don't want to read the rest of the New Testament that absolutely proves only believers were ever baptized, whatever baptism is, and that baptism has to be immersion because they always went down into the water or they always had to have much water. They never had a baptism with a canteen of water. Thank you, Lord. I love our Bible just the way it is. And I gave you a little video clip last night to show you that people who should know the Greek language knows what it means, knows what it means as well, don't they? Remember, the Roman Catholic Church is called the Western Catholic Church because Rome is west of Constantinople and the Greeks, and their language was always Latin before there was a Catholic Church, when there was a Catholic Church, and Latin was the only language used in the Catholic Church up until the mid-1960s. And for real serious Catholics, Latin is still the only language used. Real serious Catholics like Mel Gibson, who lives for the Lord every day of his life. That's Latin. The Greek Catholic Church follows the Greek language. They know what baptizo means. To submerge, dip, and plunge. So you got to see a little baby, even though they believe in infant baptism, and they're following a liturgical book of the Greek Orthodox Church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they dunk that little baby because they know what the word baptizo means. There have been millions of pages written on what the Greek word baptizo means because people want to lie in another language that the common people don't understand, but all you have to do is read the Bible. Where did John and Jesus go? Into a restaurant back room where they sprinkled a little water on his face? They went down into the river. Where did Philip and the eunuch go? Down into the river. Why was John baptizing in Anan? Because there was much water there. Why was he baptizing at Bethabara? You say, what does Bethabara mean? It's John 1.28. It means the ford. What's a ford of a river? The place where it's shallow enough that you can walk across and not drown. Does that sound like the right depth for you for a baptistry? Perfect. John 1.28. You want all the paedo-baptists do with John 1.28? Change it to Bethany instead of Bethabara. Oh, there's so many wonderful things in the Scriptures about baptism. How many baptisms are there according to the Apostle Paul? 
one. In Ephesians 4, 5, there's one God, one faith, one baptism, and we're thankful for that. We're Baptists because baptism doesn't save it all. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Let's get our three points of doctrine from one text. This text is not the plainest written text in the world or in the Bible. And I'm thankful for that as well. If you don't want to take a little bit of time and effort and figure out the verse, then you don't deserve to understand it. I'll try to explain it to you. I've explained it to you before. There is a PowerPoint presentation that takes this verse apart and the context around it, phrase by phrase, word by word, on our website. This is one of the most abused texts in the Bible. This is the most, let me say some things about 1 Peter 3.21. This is the most definitive verse in the Bible about baptism. This verse says more about baptism than any other verse in the Bible. Many times when we are comparing the King James Bible to false versions, we criticize those false versions for the verses that they take out of the Bible. The modern versions like the NIV and the ESV and so forth have deleted 50 whole verses. They've deleted 200 major sections of verses. And so we usually, we often focus on those because they're so amusing to show people that verses are missing from their Bible, but they haven't renumbered the chapter. They know where the authority comes from. The King James Bible. But I want to show you a verse that they've left right in your Bible, but they've taken all three points of doctrine out of it. You've heard it before, but I want you to remember it. And you younger children or you visitors that haven't been here in the past when I've preached on this, this is the most definitive verse in the Bible about baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not save in any literal, actual, or real way. It does not put away sins. It does not regenerate a person. The Holy Ghost declared in this verse that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. That's inside the parentheses where the Holy Spirit is explaining that when I say that baptism saves us, it doesn't save us really. Because it doesn't put away our sins. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God, and a person can only have a good conscience toward God when they are already saved. The only salvation that comes from baptism is based on the third word of the verse. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. It's a figurative salvation. When Ananias came to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, he said to Saul of Tarsus, he said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. You can imagine that some men have made taken some mileage from that verse, haven't they? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. The only washing away of sins that takes place in baptism is a figurative one. Because you're symbolizing how your sins were washed away by the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Because He said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, 
When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That word figure is very important. Baptism is a figure. The like figure. That means there's two figures in two verses. There is a figure in verse 20, and that figure is the ark of Noah. There's a figure in verse 21, and that's baptism. Baptism saves figuratively by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's only one kind of denomination of Christian that has the resurrection of Jesus Christ shown in their baptisms. Baptists. Because we raise people up out of water, showing that by His death, burial, and resurrection, our sins were washed away. But notice, it says in the parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Our flesh is the sinful part of our beings. And the filth of that flesh is the sinful bursting forth of that fleshy nature that we have. And baptism does not put that away. Baptism does not wash away our sins. Baptism does not take away our fleshly nature. We have to be regenerated apart from baptism. Baptism doesn't do any of that. And it says so. What a text. Love 1 Peter 3.21. It's seldom dealt with. It's seldom preached. Most men are too simple. They want simpler verses, even if they're Baptists. But I want you to appreciate 1 Peter 3.21 because it says so much. Now here it calls baptism a figure. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul's going to call baptism a likeness. Is that okay with you? Likeness, figure? Does either one irritate you? Do they both mean the same thing? Yes. A figure and a likeness of salvation in Jesus Christ. We know that salvation is not by human will or works. We know that regeneration is not by human will or works. We know that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. Jesus washes away sins by himself, whether you find it in Isaiah 53 or Romans 5.19, where it says, Even so, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Your obedience in baptism does not wash away your sins or make you righteous. You simply show how you were made righteous by the one that went before you and who died and buried in the earth and came up after three days and three nights. The thief went to heaven because he was a Baptist. Because baptism doesn't save. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, never baptized, because baptism doesn't save. I can multiply texts to you for hours that salvation is entirely by the will of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. But the text right here in front of us says, baptism doesn't put away the filth of the flesh, so it tells us that baptism doesn't save in agreement with the rest of the New Testament. Baptism requires a believer. Remember, there's three things we want to do. What's the result of baptism? It is not salvation. It has to be only applied to a believer, and it is done only by immersion. So let's take up the second one. Is it in the text? It's only done to believers. Well, it says that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. So the person being baptized, according to Peter, the first pope of the Catholic Church, in their opinion, says that baptism has to involve a candidate or a subject of baptism that already has a conscience. And that conscience has exercised itself regarding its relationship to God. And it has come away good 
that its sins have been paid for. Do you know how much is in these words? These words are pregnant with meaning. Pregnant like the mother of twins with meaning. This is wonderful. The answer of a good conscience. The good conscience has to happen first because baptism is the answer of it. Baptism is the act of it. So the good conscience comes first. The Bible tells us that when a person hears the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9 and 10 are the best places to go in the Bible. They can have a good conscience because they hear about a sacrifice made for sin once for all. See, you couldn't ever get your conscience clear under the Old Testament because there was a remembrance of sins made every year. It says that in Hebrews 9 and 10. They could never really get a good conscience until Jesus Christ came and the gospel was preached. And so there you are struggling under your sinfulness because you're a born-again child of God and you know you're a sinner and you know that there's a holy God in heaven who has eternal power and a Godhead. And as you hear the word of God, you know that that God is going to judge every sinner. The foolish shall not stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. You know that you're a worker of iniquity. But then the gospel comes with the good news, glad tidings of information that Jesus put away all your sins. All of a sudden, your conscience is cleansed. It's free. Your conscience, that inside apparatus that either accuses you or excuses you, it once accused you, now it excuses you by the blood of Christ. And it says, Lord, thank you for saving my soul. How do we thank the Lord for saving our soul? We want to jump into a baptistry or an oasis in the middle of the desert, or in the much water of Anan, or in the ford of Bethabara, or wherever we can find water. Because it says it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. We get to answer God and say, Thank you, God, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to wash away my sins. Do you know what happens in most Baptist churches, my brethren? Baptism is just a thing you do. You know, children just reach a certain age and it's just the thing to do. Go run them through the baptistry. I want all of us to understand the gospel as it comes through this wonderful ordinance. And the reason I like taking time on it once in a while, and I didn't plan on the time today for it, is because we only get to do it once in life and I want us to make sure that we understand it. And every time we see one or hear about one, that we rejoice in what it does show us. Do you understand that this verse proves that you have to be a believer before you can be baptized because it says it's the answer of a good conscience. Infants don't have consciences. They especially don't have good ones. And you know what? Children really haven't exercised their consciences very much about their standing before God and how wicked and depraved they are. It's a developmental process that takes place at different speeds in different people by their genetic package that God gave them and by God dealing with them. But uh, there's a third issue that we need to figure out, and that is baptism supposed to be by immersion, since we're Baptists. Is that in this text as well? Well, if we take out what's in parentheses, and when something is in parentheses, you can remove it from the sentence because it is extra information, and you could read the sentence without the parentheses in order to have that extra material out just to see the flow. Let's do it. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Peter, writing 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, says that baptism saves us figuratively by His resurrection. Just like we read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, we were buried with Christ in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him by baptism. So we show a resurrection in baptism. And aspersion, which is sprinkling, or effusion, which is pouring, doesn't show a resurrection. One verse, we get it all. Thank you, Lord, for this verse. The symbolism of baptism is taught throughout the New Testament, planted together in the likeness of His death. When you plant something, do you sprinkle a little dirt on it, or do you put it in the dirt? You put it down in the dirt. And the Bible says we were planted together by baptism in Romans chapter 6. 1 Peter 3.21, would you look at it very closely? I'm going to read it to you the way it is. Given to us by God's providence. The like figure. There are two figures. The like figure. When you have something that's like something else, that means there's two of them. And we have the word also popping up in about eight words. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also. See, there's an also. So we have the word like and we have the word also. Those two words mean that there are two figures. The figure that is in verse 20 is the ark, Noah's ark. The figure that is in verse 21 is baptism. Baptism is like the figure of Noah's ark. Noah's ark showed a picture of salvation. Baptism shows a picture of salvation. The Very important. Baptism is a figure itself. Very important. Baptism is a figure itself. There are two figures. The like figure. Okay. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, Baptism's salvation, which is only figurative, doesn't really, actually, or literally put away our sins. But baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, of someone who has already had their sins put away, who is already a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ and wants to thank God for saving them by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have in the verse that baptism is a figure, Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is only for those with active consciences. And baptism must involve immersion because it has to show a picture of a resurrection. Let me read to you the NIV. Follow closely in your Bibles. There's going to be four alterations made to steal all three points of doctrine. When we get excited thinking that we've shown someone something special by having a verse removed from the Bible... That's only one of the things that the devil's done to Scripture. He's left some verses there and simply turned them upside down. Listen. And baptism, which this prefigured, meaning there's only one figure, Noah's Ark, and Noah's Ark was a picture of baptism. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What have they done? Baptism is no longer a figure of anything. 
Noah's Ark was a figure of baptism. Baptism doesn't remove dirt from the body, which allows it to still remove your sins. Whoever got baptized to get clean, especially when you're all clothed? Whoever, whoever even thought of it? They changed, not the putting away the filth of flesh to not removing the dirt of your body. Instead of an answer of a good conscience toward God, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is no longer a figure of the resurrection because the only figure in the context is Noah's Ark being a figure of baptism. The figure of baptism is taken away because 95% of Christians have no figure to their baptism because it's either pouring or sprinkling. 1 Peter 3.21, as it stands in our King James Bible, is a very important verse. I hope you'll always remember it and always love it. Baptism is a figure of the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't put away the filth of our flesh, and we know what that expression means when we're dealing with salvation, and it's the answer of a good conscience toward God, not because they have the dirt of their body removed, but because they have the filth of their flesh removed by the death of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, because Jesus was cut off or circumcised for us in Colossians chapter 2, that by his circumcision, that means Jesus Christ cut off in the prime of life, he put away all our sins. This is the doctrine of baptism thus far, and we'll see some more of it after our break, and we'll see it put into practice before us, and it is the gospel. It is the gospel in water. And may the Lord bless us to love the figure that it presents of the Lord Jesus Christ putting away all our sins.